Welcome to Making Ships. We believe that manufacturing is challenging, but if you are connected to a community of leaders, you can elevate your skills, solve your problems, and grow your business. I'm your host, Jim Carr, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Mr. Jason Zanger and Mr. Nick Golner. Guys, welcome. Doesn't it feel good to be in our new studio, brand new facility, fresh paint? Yeah, we're, fresh we're now at the furniture. new Making Chips headquarters at 2426 Church Street, and it's it's fantastic. I got to be honest, we, we're starting to look like an actual company. I mean, we've got a studio, we've got offices, we've got a kitchen stocked with a bar. Uh, a bar. Yeah. I mean, it's this is why is, why is that an real. actual company? Because we have a bar. <laughs> That's the That's bar of the, this generation. We got to have good culture, right? Good culture, you have to have alcohol included in there. So <laughs> I think that's debatable, Jim. <laughs> right. It might be debatable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did you know. tell Jessica to pick up a bottle of champagne because we are here for lunchtime. For lunchtime, yeah. Well, we got a toast, right? Okay. Sounds good. It is exciting. Mimosas. Mimosas, you but bet. yeah, as as the metalworking nation can feel, we're super excited about the new making chips headquarters. It's it's really nice. It's unfortunate that it's in the midst of this COVID pandemic, and we don't have our entire team here because a lot of them are working from home. But it is still really nice, and it we're is. going to turn this into not only a making chips studio and marketing agency, but also a co location cool co-location space here in Rockford. Sounds great. And just to give the Metalworking Nation a little teaser about what we're going to talk about today is today when when I developed this episode structure, I kind of thought, you know, let's go back to the early days of making chips where we got real deep on really technical stuff. I thought that'd be something interesting to talk about. So yeah, we're going to talk it. about resharpening drills and end mills when and why? I'm surprised you even know anything about this, Jim, because you 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 don't find yourself behind a machine anymore. So, I know, but you know. I it's it's talked about often in my okay, facility. Okay, so you hear the chatter. I hear the chatter. I've gotten involved Ba-bum. years ago. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's good. There we go. There we go. Oh, that, like that was good. That was chatter. good. That was. That'll but make before, you have to resharpen quicker. Yeah, all right. But before we get there, Nick, why don't you share with the Metalworking Nation and Jason and I what's happening at AME Henning? Okay, I'll give you one thing for one for thing. each company. So right. Henning is we've talked about it a few times we have this 125,000 square foot expansion that we're just about to open up so we build enclosures for backup power generator sets huge ones that would like power a hospital and we build the like whole shell that goes around it so we just expanded so we can make more of those and the 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 real driver of it is the the data centers they have to have backup power. So, so you're not you're not building the backup generators. No. You're building the enclosures around the backup right. generators. Right. So like okay, Caterpillar, cool. MTU, Cummins, they build the motors, and then we build the whole shell that goes around it. Cool. And it's more than just a shell. There's like lighting, sound dampening, all sorts of electrical stuff required. He's like the T-shirt that you put on, not the actual body. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Okay. The body's Got where it. all the power is, especially in my case. Okay. I've been working out a lot with this COVID thing. <laughs> I didn't notice. Oh. <laughs> I just lost eight pounds in a week. Nick. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, well, that's good. That's, that's awesome. Good you. It's Fantastic. really sad because I'm still way above where I should be. I gained the COVID-15. Yeah, that is a thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That is a thing. I know. I know. I'm very sad I can't go to the gym anymore. Yeah. So, and then on the AME side, we've talked about it a few times, the, the build on the rock thing. 
We've always integrated other people's components with our tombstones and our grid plates for, for fixturing, but we're really expanding a lot of those partnerships and the new site we'll be launching that kind of features all these main partners in, in a week. So I'm pretty pumped about it. Oh, that. it's going to go live in a week? Yeah. What is the uh, website address? It's www.amrock.com. Got it. And that'll take you right to the AME section. I can't That's wait to see it. All about work holding. Let yeah. me know. So do you have something from the boring bar that you that you want to discuss, Nick? Well, yeah. So you had the most recent chip-in contribution. Yeah, from our friend Mike Payne from yeah. Tulsa. And I think it's boring to be at a bar by yourself. It is. If you, yeah. if you can sit at a bar nowadays. Yeah. yeah. And so what I want to encourage our audience to do is if you have something that could equip and inspire our peers, other manufacturing leaders whether it's a video or a written article or anything. It doesn't have to be super high polished because we can take care of that for you. But we have a chip-in program where you can chip in on making chips and we will publish it if, if we think it's good. And we'll give you credit and we'll make a little chip-in contributors profile page for you. We never wanted making chips to be just about the three of us. We always wanted it to be about this community of leaders. So I just want to make sure that everyone knows that that's available. Nice. Well, I actually just got a message over LinkedIn that a gentleman wa- just started up a new machine shop and he was- wanted to be able to tell his story. So maybe I'll suggest to him to fill out that chip-in form and-, and he can do just that. Yeah, that's perfect. We get a lot of people who want to be on the podcast and we can't accommodate everybody. No. But almost anyone can be a chip-in contributor. Yeah, so. absolutely. That's and awesome. don't worry about the writing. I totally get it. We have great editors that can look over what you've written and just make it sound just like we have great editors for audio. We have great editors for writing as well. Right. So yeah. don't worry about that. Just give us your concept and we'll take care, take it from there and give you credit for it. So most of you know that we recently interviewed Chad Moutre. He's the chief economist at NAM, the National Association of Manufacturing, a couple weeks back about the economic fallout from the pandemic. I respect his insight, his skill, and his experience with the economy and just knowing how the financial situation is. So, Are you jumping right into manufacturing news? I am jumping oh, right sweet. into manufacturing okay. news, Bam. you bet. And, and what it is this week that I want to talk about is I get Chad's weekly economic report. Is that what it's called? Chad's weekly economic no, report? No, it's called Monday's economic report. Oh, okay. And it's from Chad Moutre. And what I've been doing is I've been incorporating his economic report into my car machine and tool weekly production meetings. I so think I that's good because then you can share team. some info. Yeah, that's, that's, really that's good. good. They yeah. need to know what's really happening outside of the four walls at car machine and yeah, tool. Yeah, good call. Yeah. And you know, we don't do a deep dive into it, but we... Yeah, nobody wants a deep dive. We, That's what Chad's supposed to do. Right. We just need to see the highlights. So this week, the headline said, Manufacturing production fell for a record-setting 13.7% in April. Okay, so close of April, it's down 137 Okay. Yeah, that's and, not and, too good. And that's you know a what? record, record-setting. You know, I just got off the phone with somebody right before we started recording, and one of the statements that he made, this was a peer of mine in the industrial supply industry, and one of the things that he said was he believes that this next period is we're going to see a little bit more of a dip because in April people are still taking care of what was already in the pipeline. Right. They're backlog. They're, they're backlog. Yeah. yeah. And and now that backlog isn't getting filled up, and that's where that the well know, has the run more, dry. The well has run dry, and yeah. that's where more of that that downturn is going to come into play. There could well, be it's met- different for everybody, but yes, yeah. Because I'm hearing from other people that oh, now we're all of a sudden starting to get busy. So 
Absolutely. So I'm just going to read some of the excerpts from his Monday economic report. And it says, with each week, the full extent of the economic damage from COVID-19 and the abrupt decline in activity can be seen in greater detail. The severe drop in data are unprecedented. Here are the highlights from last week's report. Manufacturing fell sharply by a record-setting 13.7% in April to be the lowest levels since July 28th, with durable and non-durable goods output plummeting nearly 20% and 8.2% respectively. All 19 major manufacturing sectors experienced decline in April, and capacity utilization in the sector fell to 61.1% on new all-time low. You understand what that is? We kind of we went kind of went over this. So basically this the everyone shop. could get 30-40% more work in their shop. Right. So if you have a machine shop and you have 10 machines and you're full, all machines are running at 100%. Mm-hmm. They're saying that the average of all the machine shops that they're collecting data from, they're saying that it's it's 61%. So about a little over half capacity. And where where is capacity typically at? Because it's not hundred percent, obviously. It's never a hundred percent. If you're at a hundred percent, you're doing something wrong. You're going you, a little bonkers. Need, yeah, you need more machines. You need more machines yeah. or you need more help. Or yeah. or, or both. Or, 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 or another or auto- shift. Or automation. Or another shift. Yeah. You yeah. know what uh, the target number should be is about eighty percent. I agree. Eighty percent. Yeah, so that you have like eighty twenty rule ability yeah. to, you know, flex. Kind of a lazy number though. Just everybody, you know, let's just plug in eighty percent. Yeah. Well, but you hear it all the time. That actually comes from my brother who's like always talking about lean and getting the most oh, out of it. Okay. He's always like, okay, you never want to be at 100% because... Yeah, all right. I'll, I'll believe it because your brother said it, but <laughs> you said it. It goes on to say, in the first regional sediment survey of May, the New York Federal Reserve Bank's monthly report continued to reflect steep declines in new orders and shipments, but employment stabilized somewhat, though it remained negative. Respondents were cautiously positive that activity would rebound in the next six months. Yeah, so the question is, are we going to have a slow rebound or are we going to have a spike? And are you asking a, me? No, I, no, I'm just asking the metalworking nation. Is are you seeing? And and maybe when you go back, you can let us know when you start seeing a rebound. Are you rebounding quickly or are you rebounding slowly? It's the U-shaped recovery or the V-shaped exactly. recovery. Exactly, because I mean, I know I some people that are far v. down. I hope it's going to be V. I hope you so, know? too. And a lot of it is, you know, there's so many different industries that are tied to it. Like, we've got customers in oil and gas, aerospace, automotive, and, like, all of those different industries could have different recoveries. And yeah, totally. It's totally a matter of, like, how you blend that all together. Because I've got one of my biggest customers is having record-setting months every single month because he's in military and firearms, and mm-hmm. that's just going bonkers. Sure. So, But mm-hmm. then there's other customers that are just really, really slow right yep, now. Yeah, I know. So, there's another bullet here that I thought was important, and Nick me- thought I should mention it too. It says, the National Federation of Independent Business said the small business optimism index fell to its lowest level since March 2013, declining from 96.4 in March to 90 in April. The measure for real sales expectations fell to the lowest level in the 46-year history of the survey. And the top single most important problem was poor sales, subplanting, hiring difficulties, which had been the primary concern for two straight years. The only thing good I, I see and read and hear is 
most people do agree that it's going to be a fast return. Sure. But we don't know yet. We don't I mean, know yet. It, it, it all depends on, I mean, like what could happen with COVID in the fall and how is the retail sector going to affect things? Because, I mean, Retail's to be quite way honest, down. We, retail is getting decimated and we're actually thinking, so we operate two showrooms and we're actually thinking about, we, we had been thinking for a while because it was such a minor part of our business about closing one of our showrooms and just having it be like a will call area. And this is probably a good curbside opportunity pickup. to do that. Curbside pickup, exactly. Just delivery. Everyone's doing it. Yeah. What's interesting about that last bullet is so poor sales supplanted hiring difficulties, which had been the primary concern for two straight years. You know, we're talking about an optimism index. And one thing you can be optimistic about is a lot of really talented people lost their jobs. And we can bring in some talent that wasn't oh, there I before. Oh, no, this, is, this crisis, this pandemic that has flipped this entire world and particularly our country on its head is a great opportunity to make big decisions and big changes in your businesses. Yep. Absolutely. Now I mean, is the time to do it because everything's messed up and you might as well just go along. And it's time to reinvent yourself and, and totally. not only reinvent yourself as a company, but also for individuals to reinvent yourself. I mean, that was one of the things that I, that I pitched to you guys. We're looking for a, a marketing integrator for, for making chips. And I was like, well, we should look outside of marketing and manufacturing. If there's just an A player out there that's willing to learn, willing to be aggressive, it is a great cultural fit. Let's at least consider that person. Sure. And you just never know. You don't know. Um, Hiring somebody from a restaurant, he could be your next best manufacturing leader. Right. Could not agree more. Yeah, absolutely. So you know what I'm optimistic about? What are you? That you're going to get to the episode. Right now, man. You know, I was telling these guys when I came up with, from this episode, I was, I was going to do something else, and then I thought about this, and I thought this is a real thing that a lot of machine shops must struggle with because I know we struggle with this issue and have for decades, quite frankly. The old adage is, when do you take that half-inch diameter solid carb I drew with through the spindle coolant and send it out for resharpening? What is it going to cost? to resharpen versus what is it going to cost to buy brand new? And more importantly, is the resharpening company that you're sending that to capable of resharpening to the manufacturer's specifications? Mm -hmm. That is always a, a huge concern that, well, that we always have. Especially nowadays with there's so many like geometries that are non-standard. Unbelievable. You, you need to make sure that, you know, whatever CNC equipment is resharpening those tools can conform to that drill tip or that variable helix or whatever else that it is. Yeah. So this is only my experiences from my shop. And I'm not saying what we've done is right or wrong, but I thought I would at least share that with the Metalworking Nation. And if you all are doing something better or different, let us know, and we'll share that with all of the metalworking nation as well. Well, I mean, I can and I can deep dive into this too, Jim, because I mean, we manage these kind of sharpening services for our clients. We don't actually do it ourselves, but we contract it out. Sure. And I've I've been through this type of a, an exercise with several clients yeah. and and come up with some bullet points as to how Even to do us. it. Even us, I, th I think you, did you guys some do it. Yeah, for yeah, us yeah. Too. You yeah. guys, you guys do it, and and you need to have some like kind of some stakes in the ground as to how you do it because you need to be productive in how you manage this. You don't want to have one person analyzing every single end or drill that comes through the shop. Right. So so here's the problem. You've got this tool, you've got a job, you're you're going to be machining a part that's a few thousand bucks, right? And you've got this drill that's questionable whether or not you're going to use it or not. It's got a little wear, it's showing signs of wear, 
and you just decide to use it and you take a chance and you use the tool and what do you know the drill breaks right as it's in its three inch depth and the whole entire drill is buried into the part you either scrap the part you send it to a wire edm guy or not a wire edm guy uh, an edm guy that can bust up the carbide drill from the out inside out or just scrap the entire part and go over so Here's a drill that could have been 75 bucks about, and you just took a chance at using that drill, and now it's gone, and it just ruined, and it created a lot of more emotion than it would have been if you just would have... Or because or you're, you're trying to save 30 bucks. Because you're trying to save 30 mm-hmm. bucks, right. or, or and, you and, don't have the time. And I think that that kind of thing is, you know, there's different types of shops out there. There's shops like yours, Jim, that spend most of their time on setup and less time on actual... Right chips, yep. and then there's like the production guys who are going through a considerable amount of cutting tools, and they need to have some kind of routine that they go through that says, okay, for a new tool, I'm getting this many parts, and for a resharpened tool, I'm getting this many parts, and you need to be able to examine the differential between the two of them in order to make those decisions. Exactly. My experience with sharpening tools is it looks like to us that it is not cost-efficient to resharpen a drill or an end mill that's three-eighths in diameter under. That's what I've what we've come up with because it's solid carbide. So actually, you're buying the material. The material is, is kind of costly because it's solid carbide. And then, of course, the labor involved in grinding that true geometry into the drill and or end mill. There's all different kinds of wear that a drill can... Before, before you get into yeah. that, can I ask you a yeah. question? So... That three eighths diameter. The three eighths diameter. Did you guys do all sorts of data analysis to find out where you would draw that line between re- recycle or replace? It wasn't rocket science, but what we did is we looked at the cost of a three eighths diameter solid carbide. This is all solid carbide. We don't really use high speed anymore, but we looked at the cost of a three eighths solid carbide drill and a three eighths end mill. And when you move up from that, it exponentially goes, the price goes up. I don't know if it's because it's the mass of the carbide or the labor involved in grinding that geometry on it, but it seems like it really jumps up in that size level. Mm-hmm. So Nick, I can I can kind of get into that. So we actually did that type of an analysis for one of our clients. Now this client, high production, they use a lot of small diameter tools. Mm-hmm. And so we were really close to what, so your intuition was pretty spot on, Jim. Was um, it really? As a comparison, well, every shop is going to be different. Of you know course. what I mean? But with this particular shop, we said that we were going to scrap below three eighths. Right. So we were going to Three eighths keep, and below. So we were going to keep the three eighths. Oh, we would not. So we were close. Oh, yeah. So we were close. So we were going to keep the three eighths and, and bigger, but then we were going to scrap the ones below. Now, a lot of that also depends on, there's some other kind of nuances to it, but we did analyze the data, looked at cost of the tool, cost of the regrind, number of parts that you get with a new tool and number of parts that you get with the reground tool. And we measured it against like all of their production. And that was what we came up with was the best scenario because at some point, you need to like you. You could figure it out on a job by job basis, and I right. think with some companies, they probably it would make sense from a monetary perspective to do it. If you're like a huge company, like a like a Boeing or somebody like that, that would make sense. But for an average sh- size shop, you just need to put a stake in the ground, tell all your guys, and say 
three ace and above we keep and less than that we we scrap because like anything more nuanced than that is probably going to get lost you don't want to do like analysis paralysis but you need to do some sort of but we did the analysis yeah i mean we put we put the numbers behind it and it was pretty conclusive and then it becomes your process so everyone in the shop is fully aware if if you have a three eighths end mill or three eighths drill or below it's worn toss it it's just not worth keeping it around anymore and it doesn't so then okay so then we've got a half inch so now we've know we know our process is half above three eighths so we've got a half inch drill or a half inch end mill it's worn let's say the drill is the flank wear which is the tip of it there's crater wear there's thermal cracking thermal cracking is caused from let me guess heat heat yeah (laughs) and it it has to do with a lot of the times the coatings that are on there the amount of coolant that you're putting on the drill and then corner fracturing and there's all reasons that these drills and end mills break down according to these particular tool wears well and that's what goes into the decision so like even if it's a a larger diameter tool if one of these factors come into play you might want to recycle it and not regrind it even if it's that larger diameter yeah i wish our audience could see the the pictures of all these different types of wear yeah Um, we'll we'll have to put it in the boring i was thinking about that actually nick maybe we should do that just full disclosure i got these diagrams from iskar off their website so good job iskar you created valuable content they sure did so flank wear on a drill is the most common type of wear. It's caused by a higher cutting speed and low wear resistance on the carbide drill. So here's where we've had problems with regrinding, and I want to stress this, why it's important to get find a quality grinder, because we've been sending out regrinds for decades. Yeah, and there's a and big differential used, in oh grinders out there. There's guys that are using state-of-the-art CNC equipment with a master grinder, and then there's guys that are using it's Joe a pedestal his, grinder, yeah, and he's doing it by hand. Yeah, it's Joe oh in his garage God. doing it by hand. Yeah. And there's and there's that wide range out there. The guy doing it by hand is probably going to be cheaper, but you know you kind of get what you pay for. Sure, totally. Kind of and, and we the, don't even participate in those like low end regrinds because yeah. it's just I hope it's not. not. It's not worth it for our customers to try to be the cheapest guy. And I don't know if you guys remember back at the last IMTS when we had Andrew Benson from Iskar yeah. on. He was talking about where the industry is. Headed, everything has to be pinpoint accurate. Yes. Because of like industry 4.0, and you need yep. to have like repeatable, predictable yep. data. So his position was that the resharpening is probably going to fall off because it has to get back to the original spec perfectly. It, it, it's, that, it's, it's, it's very a, it's true. super important. And, and this is not supposed to be a commercial for ISCAR, but like they developed the product which is intended to replace solid carbide where you have a high-speed steel body and then you have a carbide insert. And a lot of times the body even has some carbide components to it too where you replace that head. And that way you don't, you can still regrind those, but because there's such less carbide in it, the cost per unit is lower totally. and you just you take it you throw it in the garbage and you could put that head back in that mm-hmm. multi-master head and you have repeatability with that as well yep exactly and that's a good product are you using those yet all the time okay. all the time but i'm right now today we're only talking about solid carbide right and just the fact jason that the geometry of these cutting tools is so high tech and sophisticated nowadays you can, you know i remember back in the 80s and 90s when we were using i always say drills from Walmart and we go over to the pedestal grinder and then I would hand grind the flank of the drill to get a sharp corner on it. But nowadays it's just not feasible to do that. Back years ago, the included angle on the, t- on the front of the drill was like 
90 degrees, maybe 120 degrees. Then, then they went to these parabolic drills and they were like 135. Now I think all of your super precision solid carbide high production drills are like at 140 degree include an angle on the front. It depends on, you know, what you're trying to accomplish and pecking versus, right. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, you know, since you've switched from buying your drills at Walmart versus buying at Zenger, <laughs> that you guys have increased production. Right. A little, bit. A little and, bit. And thank you for convincing your dad not to buy his cutting tools from Walmart. Well, anymore. it's just everything changes, right? Everything changes. You know what's but, interesting to me is to think about, you just said back in the 80s and 90s, it was like this. If, if you read our company history, you'll go back to like the early 50s where there was these engineering doctors at the University of Braunschweig in Germany, and they came, came up with this new geometry. Did you just make that name up, Braunschweig, or is that an actual university? Braunschweig, you know Brian, Braunschweiger, like what you eat? You know what oh, I'm talking about? Like, that, liver, like liverwurst? Is liver that like a bratwurst? It's a, it's a little yeah, yeah. So different than a bratwurst. That huh? must have been invented where this carbide geometry was invented. But oh, interesting. The point is, that was kind of the catalyst for the big sawing machines that we created oh, really? that can saw through steel. It, my grandfather, who founded our company and designed that machine tool, was like reading and following on that research. And that's how we were able to go from band saws to big circular saws for high production metal sawing. And I always think about... You've got this little piece of carbide, and then you've got this huge machine that could be 200 tons, and that carbide is just as doing big a all deal the work. as the whole. Yeah. The, you know, it's, it's a huge deal. It's wild. It's doing. It's taking all the abuse, the wear, the heat, and it's doing all the cutting. It's like your like the human body. You know, you got to take care of your, your body on a cellular your, level, or your else, feet, yeah. your ankles, exactly. Yeah, because that's what's guiding you. But I just want to get back, and I want to. I really want to stress the importance of finding a reputable tool sharpener. So what we've done is we've gone actually back to the manufacturer. Typically, our outside sales rep would be able to guide us to the, a manufacturer that is, can grind the original Yeah, specs. so like if you have an MA4 drill, you need, you should have that reground again by MA4 or one of their registered reground 100%, facilities. 100%. Because years ago, well, we found a reputable resharpener and they were going along really good and we sent maybe a hundred end mills and drills to them and they came back and they sucked hmm. i mean you put those out in the shop especially on end mills you know you've got the variable pitch they have to have a cnc grinder to oh, you actually to. Yeah. grind those in but they so screwed those up we weren't they were wearing out after like three cuts we oh, would wow. take long cuts and it, it was it was a waste of time Yeah, you weren't doing that through me were you I don't remember who it was, quite frankly. <laughs> Probably not. But just go back to either your distribution company like Zangers and talk to them and have them get a hold of or just go right to the manufacturer sales guy and say, hey, where do I send these tools that I'm going to make sure I get it as good as the original. Yeah, I would agree with Jim. I mean, if you've got an Iskar drill, find out if you can have it reground at Iskar. If you've got, you know, an MA4 drill, have it reground an MA4 drill. SGS on mill, have it reground by SGS. If you possibly can do those things. Yeah. And if they can't, they've all got, I can tell you from my experience, I mean, they all have their authorized regrind facilities that are trained in order to get them back to near OEM quality. Yeah. Because reground just isn't as good. Yeah, because there are, like we good. said before, there are a lot of shops that will try to take on whatever work they can, and they're they're doing it on equipment that they should not be. Especially right now for high tech tools, and that's that's one of the things where you have to keep up with technology. And these regrind facilities that haven't kept up with technology, they're really going to find their sales are going to be diminishing because they just don't have the equipment to be able to do it. Well, the other thing 
is once they regrind them, they're gonna, it's going to lose the coating on it, right? Then they have to go back and they have to get the recipe for the coating from the manufacturer. Well, typically most most regrind shops they don't. Some of them do, but most of them do not have their own coating facilities. So they're going to go and they're going to find oh out. Well, God. was this an Altin or was this tin coated? And they're going to have that coated. By yeah, but a lot of those of coatings are proprietary. There are some that are proprietary, but yeah. but to be quite honest with you, there's also a lot of them where it's just like a brand name, but it's actually a common coating, like Advil and. Ibuprofen. Yeah. yeah. It, no, that's a great analogy, Nick, because they'll call it like Super Z Purple, and it's actually like, you know... A tin coating, it, a tile well, and that coating. Would be Super Z Gold would be the tin coating, and it's right. actually just tin coating. You and know? it's not easy to add that to your uh, core competencies because the environmental oh. stuff that goes into being able to oh, do coating. Yeah. Oh, and the I, research, I can't even imagine. Because there's a lot of those where it's like, Seven layers of different, right. you know, coatings, and you can't. Exactly. You don't just you don't just develop something like that overnight. I mean, it's got to be well researched, and but um, the coating is very important too. Oh yeah, it keeps your tool. It's cool. critical. Keep- we hardly sell uncoated tools now at all. I know so, everything's coated. I mean, I remember back when I started in the industry, we were we were primarily selling high speed steel, and like you know, carbide came along, and coatings came, and now we only sell coated Co- carbide. carbide. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's definitely the industry standard nowadays. I know we don't have any more high speed at all. So, yeah, that's all I got. So, you know, Metalworking Nation, if you know anything about cutting tool resharpening, I, I would be more than happy to to hear what you've got to tell me, and I will convey that to the Metalworking Nation in a future podcast episode. So, uh, I, I'm thinking about hiring you as a cutting tool salesman. Is that right? Jim. Good. Yeah. Another, why don't you retire I'll from wear car. another hat. Yeah, right? why don't you retire from car and you can come, you'll be my star salesman. Can I, can I work remotely? Sure. Okay, yeah. great. Well, yeah. you never know. You, you never you never know where I'm going to end up. And you could be an agent. You could sell our machinery. Yeah, there you right. go. I we, can do uh, that. We actually just designed this machine for regrinding the carbide tips on our saw blades. Is that right? And because it's really hard to do, and there's no real good machine solution because there's a few different types of grinds. So we have one solution that can do both types of grinds. It's been about an 18-month project, and we finally think we're done with it. Since you're selling for Jason, you should sell for us. <laughs> Another hat, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not that you, you, you need any more. Not that I need any more, no. But anyway, I just thought that was really valuable information. I hope I've equipped and inspired you with a little bit more information that you wouldn't normally have known about. And at well, the there's end one of the more day, question. I, yeah, I Nick, had a question. Nick's got one more question. Answered. I'm always in like the machine sales. So, right. And we, you're not, we have you're not own, out there on the shop floor. No, I'm not. Yeah. Not anymore, at least. And, and we don't have, you know, I don't get involved in like what we do with our consumables. Sure. When you have a worn out, tool okay and you're not going to resharpen it okay is it easy to recycle it and get money for that yes carbide? yeah you throw it in a bucket and you, you throw, save it you up. throw it in yeah. the coffee can yeah you throw it in the coffee can you say and you <laughs> wait until it's the price is good on carbide right well i, <laughs> I know exactly that. right jason i know that but what, what i'm wondering is you know you got to find the right resharpener right you do, that's it's imperative yeah but is it i mean is it just kind of the price is the price and you recycle it or are you talking about like the price of, of the, the carbide, the the carbide? yeah yeah i mean it's a commodity so it's traded on that type of so you don't have scale. to do as much research to find a good no. person who's i mean it's going to be like your, your that's your scrap material you know your scrap guy that you have there, a relationship but there's with. a lot of scrap guys that don't even get into carbide so not all of them do but even some of like the carbide manufacturers I mean like, like the gypsy that comes around your door you got any extra carbide for me <laughs> right well, there's Scrap. a lot of machinists that will sell your new carbide, get cash from that guy, then that guy sells it as... It Twice makes like, as much. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a whole like 
theft industry that is just it's bad for my industry it's, it's horrible it, but like to answer your question and we should talk about that on a, on a future episode as well but to answer your question nick you can talk to your scrap recycler and see if they do it but also some of the cutting tool manufacturers um get into it oh they um, do as really? well yeah okay. like i know we're a widia distributor oh, well, which is cu- like the sister brand of kenna metal we're also kenna metal distributor too but they often have had promotions on recycling anybody's carbide really? so yeah huh. i did not know that yeah the cutting tool manufacturer will buy back your some scrap of them carbide. will hmm. some of them you know they've done it in the past yeah. and they don't always do it but it just kind of depends you I know? just think people throw a lot of stuff away where there's tons no, of value not no carbide. not carbide it's I would say it's probably anywhere from five to eight bucks a pound I don't know what the current rate is. Yeah. Maybe I, I'm just would, thinking of it because my uncle told me a funny story. We threw a bunch of old Mazak parts away for our old machines. Oh no. And his daughter, my cousin, was like, I bet I could get some money for that. So she pulled him out of the dumpster and she made like eight grand on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why didn't we make that money? <laughs> oh, that's but good awesome. for her. <laughs> awesome. She's scrappy. Yeah, exactly. She's, there you go. But you. <laughs> Gotcha. So anyway, at the end of the day, it's 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 important. This is something that comes up in the shop quite often, and you got to make the right chip because at the end of the day, if you're not making chips, you're not making money. Bam. Thanks for listening to the Making Chips podcast. Jim and Jason knew that the metalworking nation, the community of world-class makers, needed to commit to a new way of leading to stay ahead of the competition. So, Making Chips was created to fill that void, to give you advice from other manufacturing leaders who can push you to take action. Your manufacturing challenges have a solution. And many of them are at makingchips.com. And data are unprecedented. Unprecedented. Wait, it's an unprecedented? Unprecedented. 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 It's not presidential. I'll read it it again. (laughs) 